0: Gracious God, open your word to us and us to your word as we begin this study in the Gospel of John. Be with any who might still be coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we spent a year going through the Synoptic Gospels, looking at how the picture of Jesus depicted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke while varied and different, was nevertheless a picture of the same basic man and of the same basic story told around the same basic bunch of clueless nuts. <laughs> the disciples. Some things never change. Now we're gonna read the Gospel of John, which stands apart from the synoptics. The synoptics are called synoptic because they are synoptic or synonymous with each other. They tell basically the same story with many differences but the same story, more or less the same way, following the same outline, with many of the same events taking place, more or less in similar ways. John varies greatly from the synoptics, both in terms of of details and chronology, even in terms of how Jesus is presented, how the disciples are characterized, what kind of a teacher and preacher Jesus is, is very different in John as opposed to the synoptics. John tends to be, I mean, even the synoptics are interpretive, as we saw, but John is way more interpretive, as we will see. Way more philosophical. Jesus and the synoptics could be philosophical, but John takes it and puts it into warp speed in terms of how interpretive and philosophical the approach is to Jesus. There are arguments with regards to the author of John. We could spend a great deal of time dealing with all of the various nuances and difference and all the various arguments from all the different sources as to who wrote John, who wrote the letters of John, and who wrote the book Revelation. Uh, I'll nail down a few of the facts that are really inaugural. Firstly, the same person did not write Revelation who also wrote the Johannine gospel and letters. It's not the same person. The use of vocabulary, grammar style, total structural approach is very different. The reading is totally different. The style is different, the vocabulary is different. The way in which the guy writes is different. So much so that you can't account for it through the difference in genre a gospel or letters as opposed to an apocalypse. It's um, a different author. At the same time, the same person who wrote the gospel wrote the letters that are attributed to John, first, second, and third John. That's the same author. The vocabulary is identical. The sentence structure is identical. The way in which the author uses theological terms Is identical so whoever wrote John also wrote the epistles that are identified as being from John but the two authors the author of the Apocalypse and the author of those of John and the letters are not the same person they are radically different people was it John the Apostle who wrote any of it There there are some scholars who hold that John the Apostle wrote the Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation, but not the Gospel and the Letters. That's interesting. There are others who say that John the Apostle wrote the Gospel and the Letters, but not the Apocalypse. There are many who say that John the Apostle wrote neither collection, but that they were written by a follower or disciple of John. That's also a possibility. There is no cohesive response in the community. From conservative to progressive and everything in between, nobody seems to agree with anybody else on, on all of the details, although there does seem to be some general agreement on, on broad points, and we'll, we'll hit some of those. The traditional identification is that John the Apostle wrote all of it, Well, we know that's not correct, even early church fathers and writers historians Irenaeus um, uh, Joseph, not Josephus, Irenaeus, papius they knew that there was a difference in the authorship between the apocalypse and the letters in the gospel so they recognized some of these problems and, and, and they're apparent to any student of Koine biblical Greek when they start you learning first-year Greek, the thing they start you on is the Gospel of John for a very specific reason. It's the easiest Greek in the New Testament. The sentence structure is regular. The vocabulary is sound and non-varied. There are few uh, places where the structure is irregular and the same is true for the epistles. If you, are, if you learn the vocabulary and grammar that is contained in the Gospel of John and can read it as I can pretty much without turning to a lexicon, and then you turn over to the book of Revelation, you're lost. <laughs> you know you're reading somebody else's work. You're turning to a lexicon within the first sentence because of the difficulty and the manifold uh, differences in grammar and vocabulary. Uh, you can in a similar but also dissimilar way you can read the letters of Paul and if you're good in the study of Greek you can read the letters of Paul without a lexicon or with only rare occasion to look at a lexicon and then you turn over to the book of the Hebrews which is traditionally assigned to Paul and you discover it's a very different vocabulary a very different sentence structure so so it's a similar kind of experience Although the theological content of Hebrews is Pauline, the way it's presented is not. And uh, you can't even say that about John as opposed to the apocalypse. I think that the best argument to be made is that, is that of um, Raymond E. Brown. Raymond E. Brown is a New Testament theologian, historian, Roman Catholic uh, priest and scholar who has written some of the most incredible work on John and on the johannine community and his analysis of the gospel of john sees five stages of its development and at least three different authors a early stage a couple of early stages which seem to go back to close to the time of jesus they go back before the synoptics Then there's a stage which clearly seems to be reliant upon synoptic sources, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Luke. Then there's a a final author's stage, and then the final editor's stage of development. So essentially five steps or stages of development with at least three hands, three different authors if not four or five, at work in the writing of this gospel across a period of time. He tends to cite or identify the earliest stage with John, the apostle, with his teachings and preachings about the life and ministry of Jesus. And within the dialogues of John's gospel, you can find that teaching material anecdotes about the life of Jesus. Jesus did this, Jesus did that, Jesus healed here, Jesus healed there. All of those types of events are contained within that layer, those stages. But then you come to a secondary or tertiary stage where you have the the actual text that we have in front of us, the large percentage of it being written. And here you have an author who's taking the earlier materials and crafting them together into a literary work that is a degree of polishing beyond the synoptics. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus is an itinerant Jewish rabbi teaching as itinerant Jewish rabbis taught with parables and morality stories. In John's gospel, You have dialogues, these long speeches that Jesus gives. And while that type of teaching was not unknown amongst Jews, it wasn't generally what an itinerant Jewish rabbi would do. You found it amongst the Greeks, and you found it amongst the philosophical Hellenistic Jews who lived in the Gentile Greek world. So, what, you're, what you see here is someone from the Hellenistic Greek world taking the source material and using it to write these beautiful teaching sermons and placing them in the lips of Jesus. So, while the, the basic content might be Johannine, uh, as in the apostle John, and therefore from Jesus, the the actual literature itself is, is is beyond that. It's interpretive of the material more so than it is than what you find in the synoptics. Is this like Luke? Is this like what Luke did? Is it's, it's as far beyond Luke as Luke is beyond Mark. That's what I'm thinking. It sounds like what Luke did to Mark. and to It's even more so. Wow. That's amazing. It's even more so.
1: Well, uh, how, about, how about do we know anything about John that would Itself to being, you know, appealing to a Greek editor or <clears throat> writer or expander.
0: Or... Oh, you mean anything about the apostle himself or the book? Yeah, I mean, I mean
1: enough.
0: Uh, well, where he lived, um, John, John had to leave Palestine during the persecutions of the church, and moved into the region around Ephesus, and therefore he he was living in an area. M- much as Paul was preaching in an area, much as Luke was living in an area, where, uh, where he would have been writing to largely Gentile communities. Hence, many references that you have, look at Jews from the outside. Now, some people, some scholars have said, well, the author of John cannot have himself been a Jew because he has such a hostile attitude towards the Jews. And the author of John has a terribly hostile attitude towards the Jews. But guess what? Matthew, which is the most Jewish of the Synoptic Gospels, clearly written by a Jewish Christian, nevertheless had one of the harshest attitudes towards the Jews to be found in the Synoptic Gospels. So that argument doesn't really fly. That, the information that we have comes from Acts? Is that
1: right? Where, where John went after? Comes from
0: Acts, comes from the traditions of the church as to where John went. We get in that material both from Papias and from Irenaeus and Eusebius.
2: How would you compare the Greek of John to the Greek of Luke?
0: The Greek of John is simple, clear, straightforward, and easy. Okay. The Greek of Luke is more complex, more polished, more scholarly. Uh, comparing John to Mark is fascinating. John is good Greek. Mark is simply simple and poor. <laughs> um uh, John is polished in its own right and yet and highly philosophical, but not scholarly Greek. Luke is almost classical Greek, almost not Koine. In the terms of the forms of Greek that existed in the ancient world, the classical Greek literature, Luke is similar to it in many ways, whereas John is not. Think about it this way. John is good, colloquially spoken, Greek, written down. Luke is literary Greek, far more so than Mark or Matthew. Um, Paul, it, it, John is similar in terms of grammar and, and vocabulary to the way in which Paul's letters read. That's why if you learn the letters, if you learn Johannine vocabulary and grammar, you can tackle Paul with very little trouble. Now. To say that the argument that John is hostile towards the Jews isn't an argument against Jewish authorship does not mean that it's not valid to see within John non-Jewish components. There definitely is. There's some Gnostic-type thinking and philosophy. There's definitely some Gentile thought underway. And much of that comes from that interpretive layer beyond the apostle, where the the author has taken the material and written these dialogues with their interpretive spins. So where John may have taught it as the man came to Jesus and asked, when he taught the stories, the person who's writing this down now in creating these dialogues much later is going, the Jew came to Jesus and said. And, and it, 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 with understanding the redactional character of what you got when you go from source to author is, is the shift there. Um, some scholars have said the Apostle John is that first layer, first early layers that Brown has identified. John the Elder who would be a Greek speaking person is and a Greek cultural person is the artificer, the writer of the gospel as we have it. And he would have been a disciple of John. And then he is also might be, but probably isn't the final editor who comes in and does the final edit job, adds the last chapter, and adds a few other pieces of material and cleans some stuff up. And is, um, is that what
1: happened at 100 or whatever, the editing, the final I, editing?
0: If Mark was written between 65 and 70 before the destruction of the Second Temple, and after after the death of Peter in 68, and it, or 64, excuse me, so therefore sometime around 68, and Matthew was written and Luke was written, if Matthew and Luke were written after the destruction of the Second Temple between 70 and 80 AD, so sometime in that period there, then... You can't really get the formulating of the Gospel of John, more or less as we know it today, until you get past the writing of Luke, because the author of John seems to know Luke. Now, that gives you an earliest date for the writing down of the dialogues as we have them, but the material they're based upon are contemporaneous with Mark and even earlier back into the earlier period contemporaneous with q there are some interesting hints that that's, that tell us that q if not unknown to the author of john the materials in q the stories the teachings in q were known to the to 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 john the back source for the author of the gospel this can get confusing.
2: <laughs> I thought this guy was the first layer was the actual apostle.
0: Too. Probably, that's my opinion.
2: Okay, so that means that he may have predated
0: Luke. For he sure. would have. He would have predated Duke, Luke. He would have predated Matthew. He would have probably predated Mark in the sense that Mark's writing it down it happens after the death of Peter.
1: Right, and he would have had to learn how to write.
0: Uh, that or or, somebody else. or he dictates it. So he's not, he's just the source. Just yeah. as, right, that's exactly correct. Most source. scholarship today, even the mainstream, even towards the, the moderate to conservative scholarship would say, John the Apostle probably didn't pin these by hand. He probably dictated them to another writer who wrote them down and to a secretary um and depended upon that secretary to get it written down the stories before it ever got put into the form that we have it in the gospel that we know the stories themselves would have been written down um contemporaneous with the synoptic gospels themselves probably and then the form that we know them in today was after luke so you really can't have according to brown You can't have the writing down of the gospel as we know it now, prior to its final editing, prior to about 85 A.D. And and it was finished probably about 95 A.D., with a final edit, about 95, which says that it was the last of the gospels written, and among the last of the works in the New Testament to be written. Not Certainly not the last, but among the last of the New Testament works to be written, all right? The last possible date for it having been written is 125 AD because of our textual evidence that goes back to 125 that we'll talk about in just a second. I tend to set the date of the writing of, of the Gospel of John between 90 and 95, realizing that some back work had already been done Earlier, as far back as 70. And that it then got used and written out around 90 and finalized by 95 at the latest. All right. It's, uh, I think Brown is right. A community wrote this book. But a community that was both led by and then remembered an apostle, someone who knew Jesus. And I think that that is true. Um, to say that is not to say that the, that the account in John's Gospel is historically more accurate than the synoptics. Most scholarship says exactly 180 degrees on that subject. That, that what we have in the synoptics is a better attempt to reconstruct the historical life of Jesus than John has. Um, I don't know I'll tell you this much many of the early church fathers agreed with Papias when he said that Mark wrote down the sayings of Peter about the life of Jesus but not in order so that the story the chronology of Mark Papias who was bishop of Heriopolis in 150 AD writing about this subject he essentially says Mark got the order of events in the life of Jesus wrong because he, being a disciple of John the Elder and part of this Johannine community, preferred which gospel? John, and preferred the chronology and structure of John and the way Jesus is depicted in John as opposed to Mark's account and therefore Matthew and Luke's general chronology. Um, And there are many people, many writers in the first several hundred years of the church who took that attitude And from across the spectrum from the Latin Church in the West to the Greek Church in the East To the Jewish Christian Church. There were some there who thought the same way to the Gnostic Christians Many of whom liked the the Gospel of John. People who were completely outside and heretical uh, preferred John over some of the other gospels for reasons that we will see. Um, They didn't like all of John, (laughs) but they liked elements of it. Um, They all tended to prefer John and the picture of Jesus that we find in John. Um, But uh, most scholarship would say that the synoptics preserve a more historical view, even though if Brown is right, John is actually closer to a person who was there (laughs) <laughs> yeah. or as close as Mark is at least if not even closer because it sounds as if, if if Brown is right then there was some intent on the part of the apostle himself to get down some of this teaching material intentionally instead of Mark saying okay Peter's been executed now I need to get this stuff written down so I don't forget it kind of attitude not at Peter's behest but after the fact I mean, it's possible that the scribe could have written down what John taught and then John said, okay, read it back to me and then make corrections. Whereas once Peter's dead, you know, flambe there in in Rome, it's impossible for him to do that. So, but that would be the earlier stages. Then the later stages where you have all this interpretation flowing in and the structure coming in the form of these dialogues, by that point in time you're probably beyond John's life there's question as to how long John lived some people think that he died early there is a tradition that he did but the principal tradition and the strongest tradition is that he lived a very long time and actually died during the reign of in, in the uh, the persecutions under Domitian which could have his death as late as 117 AD not likely that late because that would make him over a hundred but but there's no reason to say that the man couldn't have lived into his 80s or 90s, and there seems to be reason to believe that he did. So.
1: But John, um, John does have like a three-year ministry, right? Versus the one year?
0: Oh, John's gospel hanging depicts. Hanging around Jerusalem
1: versus just going up there one yeah. time. Yeah, John's
0: down. gospel depicts a three-year-long ministry, or at least a two and a half year. There are three Passovers in the story. Oh, okay. That's, That's right. how you know right. that. Whereas Whereas Marx seems to put it all within one year. Well, the question becomes, which is more accurate? Some people actually say, John's probably is more correct that you've got a longer ministry here. Whereas Marx is more artificial. <laughs> and, and something in me says that's true, and I don't know why that is. That just may be my own devotion. But, but that seems more likely to me. That John, that, that John actually reflects the reality that Jesus had a longer ministry than just one
2: year. That screws up the movie though, really badly.
0: Yeah. You know? <laughs> now, um, are there any questions? I mean, I'm mean, i covering a lot of material very quickly. Some of this will hit again during the context of reading. When we hit some of the dialogues, I'm going to be pointing them out to you.
1: You, know, you mentioned the dating
2: of you know, mm-hmm. various Gospels. Has modern scholarship pushed back the dates that the, because weren't there a lot of those scholars in the 19th century, particularly the Germans, that thought that the Gospels were written like a couple of centuries after?
0: And we know that's in fact impossible because some of our fragmentary copies of the Gospels date to the second century. So, as we'll see in just a minute, some of our earliest copies of John date to 100, one fragment dates to 125. And then our most, a very substantial piece of John's Gospel dates to 175 to 200, which is way before some of those late dates that some of the Tubingen scholars were establishing in the 1800s. Um, for the most part, scholarship has pinned down, and this is generally accepted across the board, pinned down the Gospels to 65 to 95 as the authoring range with Mark being the earliest and John being the last independent more or less from Mark other than Matthew and Luke other than knowing Luke and following Luke's lead in a few places.
2: Who are these two historians that they mention in this one, this Arrhenius
0: and whatever? Arrhenius and Tertullian. Yeah. What does it say?
2: Oh, it's giving them credit, it says, um, and it, the early writers uh, say that those two say that John wrote this gospel and all of it and other evidence agrees.
0: Irenaeus was Bishop of Lyon in 175 That's AD he was um, a writer and a historian of the church yes. a very important figure who quoted extensively from Papias' works and is a very important source for the later church historian Eusebius and uh, he is principally important in identifying the author of the gospel as John the Apostle and he depends upon in part upon Papias for that finding. Tertullian was a a little bit later church uh, father, preacher, teacher who also who, who, who wrote one of the earliest commentaries on the gospel of John and fascinating writing and he also wrote a whole series of sermons based on the Gospel of John and some of the earliest sermons we have come from, from Tertullian so, a very interesting figure though, He's a, he was a weirdo, he castrated himself yeah. He just missed. <laughs> like, like Origen, he, he was so worried about sin and sexual sin that he thought it was necessary to stop it. <clears throat> Origen whacked it off Tertullian had it whacked off. So. Yeah. Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> no, thank you. That's giving too much. <laughs> <laughs> Other there questions?
1: Was, well, the was there, some, is there something is there anything we know about John that would make him an attractive pseudonym? If, assuming it was all false. who is was the beloved disciple? Is that the one well, that? John does not
0: actually appear in the gospel itself he's identified the as synoptic. the beloved he's identified in the synoptics but he is called the disciple who jesus loved or the beloved disciple in john's gospel but you can identify him with john because a he's the one missing and and b when the synoptics say a certain disciple does something and then john says that the beloved disciple does that same thing we kind of have an idea as to who the identification is um, John is very important. He he was identified as an important pillar of the church by Paul. And hence, he might be a uh, rather uh, uh, attractive uh, person to identify as the author of this particular gospel. Um, The other thing is that the letters say, I, John. I whoever the author is, his name was John. Now, whether or not he was the apostle is another could matter. The elder. John the Elder, or could have been another John. I mean, John was a fairly common name, just like it is today. So, it, it could very, it, it, it could be that it was simply the fact that he was an important disciple, and since it seems as though uh, he's the disciple missing in the storyline, then it, it would make sense then to identify him as the author.
1: Stop-nosed kid, they didn't want to mention my name. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. Here we go. Um, as always, I do a little bit of textual work so that you know where we're getting our Bibles from. I always love to do this. Textual sources for the Gospel of John, the papyri. Most of the earliest manuscript fragments that we have of John's Gospel are little scraps of papyrus. For example, P52, also known as the Ryland's Papyrus, is just a scrap of paper roughly the size displayed to the right. (laughs) This is papyrus. For those who haven't seen it, I'll pass around a few sheets. This is papyrus. It is early, ancient paper. It is made out of the leaves of a papyrus plant that grows in Egypt. They take the leaves, they layer them down, they lay them down, these fronds, you can see the fronds in this one especially. They lay them down, they compress them until they press out all the moisture and they let them dry. And then you've got paper. The smooth side or the smoother side, most of this has fairly smooth sides on both sides, but usually one side is smoother than the other, is the front side and then the rough side is the back side, usually. And all of the earliest literature of the New Testament was written on papyrus for a very simple reason. It was the cheapest writing material that existed at the time. While still ruinously expensive, it was nevertheless the cheapest you could get, much cheaper than animal skins, for instance, in the form of parchment. So early on, when the church was not the undergoing um, uh, enterprise of the empire as it was after 350 A.D. or 308 A.D. Uh, the, um, uh, they, they wrote on papyrus and was it
2: long sheets?
0: at first they were long sheets that would be rolled up as scrolls then they became long sheets that were cut to make codecs or codices, books that would be sewed together and most of the earliest copies that we have are either (coughs) designed to be codices or were scrolls that were chopped up to make codices all right this if you look to the right you'll see a picture of of the Ryland papyrus or p52 it has part of John 18 31 through 33 on the front which is also called the recto and part of John 18 37 through 38 on the back which is called the Verso, and is dated to about 125 AD. They date it based upon the formation of the letters, how the letters are written, the style of writing. You can date things in that ancient world at that period of time because of the nature of scribal teaching, how they taught people how to write. You can identify the era, the the century, and even the decades in which material was written. The other way to do it is, of course, is to take a piece of the material and, and carbon-14 date it. But when you don't have much material to the, use, <laughs> that's yeah, a problem. Yes, you know, don't give That's them a them problem. Them. Uh, they are working on currently working on methods whereby they can date carbon-14 date papyrus with a piece of a sliver of material less than a millimeter of cross. If they can actually get to that point, then there would be no objection to carbon-14 dating everything because they could take a little bit of that margin and it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter at all. This is among the oldest fragments of any of the books of the New Testament. Some dating has put it as early as 100. Some scholars have said it reads kind of more like something that was written towards the end of the first century. But most scholarship says, well, that may be true. The scribe may have been trained how to write at the end of the first century. But we're giving it this leeway zone of up to 25 years, all right? It used to be dated a little later than that, towards 150. But in the 1980s, they pushed its dating to 125. And it seems to be the consensus of the community that that's what it dates to. It reflected a complete copy. This is a fragment left over of a complete copy of the Gospel of John. Because, huh? Written in?
2: 125
0: in Greek written in Greek. And a page would have been about about that big and about that long. So it wouldn't have been very large. And we know that based upon where we are on the front in chapter 18 (laughs) verses 31 through 33 and where you get to on the back (laughs) very quickly. So it's not a very it, it was a single bound volume and it wasn't very large physically. And that also equates to what we know about the formation of the canon, the, 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 the text of the New Testament itself. In the first half of the 2nd century, the books circulated, in, uh, the Gospels circulated independently. Only Paul's letters were circulated as a group. All right? Paul's letters are circulating as a group as early as, as 92, because Clement of Rome quotes from them at that time. And so he has a copy of the entire collection and he quotes from several of the different letters. So we know it's circulating by 92. And that's a com- that would be a complete copy. And we actually have a part of one of those collections of Paul's letters in, in, our, in our manuscript archives. The most complete earliest copies of Gospel of John are Papyrus 66 and Papyrus 75. P66 is one of the most impressive New Testament manuscripts being part of the extensive Chester Beatty collection. It dates to about 200 AD, but perhaps as early as 150 depending upon the scholar doing the dating. I've seen the arguments in favor of an early dating scheme and I tend to agree that it's that the letter formations and the structure of the entire work does tend to lend itself more towards a mid-century dating based upon what we have from the secular world and so i would agree that you could probably push it to 175 to 200 and that gives you a a much more solid dating and there are scholars including um William uh, Philip W Comfort who talks about that in here but here's a picture of two pages or two leaves of p66 showing John 6 64 through 71 on the left and John uh, 13, 15 through 20 on the right and this gives you an idea uh, it's a somewhat larger book
2: <laughs> They scrunch that first page in and, uh, it's closer together
0: and Is this
2: the actual size? No, that's,
0: much, that's much, smaller. much smaller it would have been more like about like this okay. it's a much larger book Probably written for use in church in worship. In what book is this? This is this is the Gospel of John. Okay. In in uh, papyrus 66, which it dates to between 175 A.D. and 200, and is uh, therefore only about 75 to 100 years after the writing of the gospel itself. It's hard to get any closer <laughs> to. The time of the writing of these books than this type of stuff. It is, it's just almost impossible. 352 is amazing, but this is extensive. That was the same
2: material that this was on? Yes, there. that's
0: papyrus. And this one just didn't quite make it, and that did for some reason. Yeah, this was protected more. Look what's in it. It's John chapter 1, verse 1 through John chapter 6, verse 11. That's a big chunk it's chapter 6 35 through chapter 14 26 that's another big chunk it's chapter it's verses 29 and 30 there are 14 it's 15 2 through 26 16 2 through 4 and 6 through 7 10 and verse 10 through chapter 20 verse 20 it's 22 through verses 22 through 23 and chapter 20 verse 25 through 21 verse 9. it's a huge piece of the gospel
1: There's only 21 chapters.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's it's substantially the whole thing with some leaves missing from inside of it. That's fascinating. The other manuscript from this early period is P75. Uh, It is the other extensive early copy of John dating from the 3rd century, about 200 to 250 A.D. And... There's reasons to think it's probably closer to 250. Um, those are an unimportant arguments, it's still very early. And contains, in addition to large sections of Luke, John 1, verse one through chapter 11, verse 45, verses 48 and 50 through 57 of chapter 11, and chapter 12, verse three through 13, one, and verses eight and nine of chapter 13, and then chapter 14, verses eight through 30, and chapter 15, seven through eight. So this has a massive, extensive, 11 chapters almost at the very beginning, and then chunks, pieces of the rest. Um, And it's from later, which also fits with what we know about the formation of the canon. Uh, The New Testament started to form first as uh, by Marcion in the middle part of the second century taking taking the gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul and saying this is uh, the Christian testament we're going to get rid of the the old testament and just have a new testament Um, and then the church in Rome saying no 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 and the other church is saying oh no 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 and then each essentially each wing or each branch of the church saying We want to have our gospel as the head up of the New Testament, and the the compromise was we'll have all four major gospels contained there in the Synoptics and John. And then the letters of Paul and the Catholic epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Petrine epistles and Jude. And that's how the first New Testament formed, and it formed in the very late second century. So by 250, it's not a surprise that you would find um, one book with both Matthew, with both, with both Luke and John in it, because they probably published it early on in these papyrus books and these papyrus codices in volumes. So you would have. Probably Matthew, Mark in one, Luke and John in one, Acts in one, the letters of Paul in one, and the Catholic epistles in one. We seem to see that in the collections, all right?
2: What did they call it when they were reading or preaching or whatever from it, or sermonizing? What did they call the the
0: codes? You know, like we we say, I'm reading from the Bible. What would they call this? I'm reading from the gospel according to St. John or whatever after about 200. But you have to have Papias giving them their titles first. Uh, (laughs) That's that's what I'm going, I'm thinking. I'm reading from this piece of paper. Well, from the letters of Paul, that was easy. We're reading from the letters of Paul. Paul to the Romans, Paul to the Corinthians. I'm reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke at at a certain point. That's how they would do it, kind of like we do it, in in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: So Mark and John and Matthew didn't title their books? No,
0: they didn't. Neither did Luke. They didn't title their books. I'm reading from them. That's why Papias Gospel. had to tell us in 150 AD who wrote well, what was. books. <laughs> <laughs> it's good most most people years. are shocked by that. Then you realize, well, Papias, that's the reason why Papias was telling us who wrote these things. Because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, it, wasn't written, it wasn't written at the top early on. <laughs> it really wasn't. But by the time of the great manuscripts, the, the, the manuscripts that are written on parchment, the Uncial manuscripts, they were written on top. Look at the next, col- oh, let's, let's finish the bit on the papyrus. There are at least 21 known papyrus fragments of John's Gospel. 11 of them are early, pre-300s. The papyrus numbers are, and then I give you all the various papyrus numbers that are included in that collection. Some of these are large, like 66 and 75 are multi-leaf multi-page papyrus manuscripts. Some of them are about, this, about twice the size of a postage stamp, as in 52, <laughs> okay? So where
2: did the numbers come from?
0: Oh, those were assigned by the various scholars who discovered them. And there's now a convention for how you identify manuscripts. And there probably are more than this now. Uh, this is where we stood when this book was edited, which is my latest resource on the subject.
2: So are they in the order that they
0: were found? No, 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 not at all. They're in the order in which scholarship, for whatever reason, has decided to, to number them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Don't ask me why. <laughs> I, I, I did a PhD minor in this subject and I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> now there is a little more sense to be made in terms of the Unseals. Here we have far more extensive textual exemplars, including the first complete copies, not only of John, but of the entire New Testament. There are at least 68 Uncial manuscripts that contain John. 13 are com- contain John completely, 10 substantially complete, and the rest being varyingly fragmented. Examples of these manuscripts include, and of course at the very top are the big three, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandranus. Sinaiticus dates to the fourth century, and so does Vaticanus. Both of them are part of Constantine's publication of the New Testament. So and they were produced in the mid 300s. And they are complete. And in John, they are complete. All right.
1: what does that
0: word, what's the uncial mean? Uncial means all capitals. One of the characteristics of, the, of these manuscripts is that everything was written in all caps. Later on, they would develop what's called the minuscule manuscripts, where instead of having all capitals, they would have mixed capitals in lowercase. Those are a heck of a lot easier to read, but um, uh, they're also not as precise. Believe it or not, and the basic and it's based on the fact that in the er, in the third, well in the fourth especially, it's also true in the third because many of the papyri are also seals in that sense. In the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh centuries A.D. in during the great imperial period of the empire, Christian imperial period, uh, official documents were always written in uppercase and the Bible was considered an official document of the Empire and these were produced by imperial scriptura imperial writing houses paid for by the Empire itself and um, uh, Sinaiticus is located at the British Museum Uh, Vaticanus is located of course at the Vatican Alexandrinus is located also in England uh, Ephraimai also dates to the fifth and Beza dates to the fifth but those are you know, very fragmented or mostly complete um, Alexandranus is lacking part of six through, chapters 6 through 8 it's, um, it, they are mostly complete then you'll notice later on 8th, 9th and 10th century they are complete and they're called Byzantine late imperial period if you have a King James and you're reading from the King James, the Greek of, for example, manuscript K will match closely the English translation in the King James. Because these later generations of the Uncial manuscripts were what the King James is based upon. Whereas if you're reading from the NRSV or the NIV, then your translation is going to be following either Sinaiticus Vaticanus and Alexandrinus in some places or 66 and 75 or all four of those in a blended way so when you're reading for example when you're reading the NRSV or the NIV you are reading a translation of a manuscript that's only a within 200 to 300 years removed from the writing of John's Gospel.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas if you're reading the King James, you're reading a a translation of a manuscript that's a thousand years removed from the writing of John's Gospel. Which would you prefer? (laughs) (laughs) This this one's hard. (laughs) Okay, any questions? The Gospel of John is the best attested to gospel than the New Testament we have more copies from earlier periods and more complete or substantial complete substantially complete copies from the earliest century of John than we have of, of the other three Gospels which is fascinating and reflects a fact that John's gospel was for the first several centuries actually the first thousand years of the most popular of the Gospels especially after the circulation of them in the fourfold manner and people who did not have them have it originally got to read it. Because originally, for example, uh, Rome's favorite gospel was Mark. Earlier on, all of the early authors out of Rome are quoting Mark extensively. Yeah, they sometimes would quote Luke or they would quote uh, Matthew, they even would quote John, but, they, but they, almost, they overwhelmingly quoted Mark until suddenly, after about 175, suddenly they start quoting John more <laughs> liberally. And that's because by that time, John is in circulation in areas of the empire beyond where it was written. And John was very popular in the West.
2: Well, I had a inter- uh, question about that. Oh, I just happened to be reading um, a fictional um, Presentation of Cleopatra's life, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't realize that she was Greek. Yep, and that she came from a long line of
0: Greek. She was, was a descendant was of Ptolemy, Ptolemy, and a descendant of one of the generals that served under Alexander the Great. Oh my God! Uh-huh. And
2: her daughter then heard testimony of Jesus Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. That's that's tradition,
2: but. How extensive was the Greek influence in the early church? Oh, where it was early?
0: amazingly extensive. The, the, the early church, period. when it first grew and left Palestine, it went to places outside of Palestine where Greek was the mother tongue. And it was being communicated by people who either Greek was an acquired language or a trade language that they learned, or was their mother tongue. People like Paul, for whom Greek was his mother tongue. Two people for whom Greek was either their mother tongue or a language they knew very well. So early on, the entire, the the various Gospels were, you know, the stories about Jesus were translated orally into Greek. Early on, Q was translated into Greek, very early on. Um, early, uh, Paul's letters were written in Greek. The, the Gospels that we have, all four of them were drafted in Greek. All of their editing was done in Greek. So,
2: well, what you said, and then I was thinking about how the popularity um, um, of his writings. But if you read Plato, Socrates, if you read um, Aristophanes, if you read their um, English translation, it, the philosophy is very simple. And yet, so it, um, pervasive, it almost <laughs> leads you down this path, this path of thought, the, to the point where you are messed up for the rest of your life. Greek, but, <laughs>
0: Greek thinking cognitive lays spiritual. behind Western thought. Right. It cannot be avoided. <laughs> it's part of our of, of our language. Mm-hmm as we'll see. Uh, Greek is very important. Um, it, uh, and, and I think that's a good thing because I, I, I love Hebrew. Hebrew's a beautiful language. It's, just a, it's a poetic, beautiful language. It sometimes sounds like Klingon being spoken, but it's a beautiful language. And, and it looks like chicken's tracks across the page, but it's a beautiful language. But I'm gonna tell you something. It is not a precise language. It is a very context is everything kind of language. And Greek, on the other hand, is a very precise language in terms of tenses and, and, and activity. It, it's a very precise language. And uh, that makes it actually a good thing to have all of this material in. But unfortunately, the Greek way of thinking then lays behind this articulation of the gospel, it becomes almost impossible to extricate the two. You will see in tonight an example of where that Greek characteristic is evident in John chapter one, and yet you have this Hebraic attempt to throw material in. (laughs) You're gonna see it in just a moment here. It'll be funny, too, and it, uh, it is funny. I, wanna, I want you to hear what it sounds like. So, we've been talking about Greek, so here's the beginning of John's Gospel in Greek. You're invited to turn to chapter one, verse one, and follow along in English. Here's what it sounds like. I won't do this for very long, but just to give you an idea of what it sounds like. arche ein halagos, kai halagos ein prostantheon. kai theos ein halagos, verse one. What does that mean? Well, in the beginning, now, arke, yeah. Here's, this will show you the, 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 the extreme dependence of English upon Greek. Arke means the beginning. We get a word from that in English, archeology, span the study of the beginnings or of the ancient world. Ein arke, ein halagos, logos, the word for word. But it also is the root word from which we get the English word logic. So it's more than just a word it's a it's a concept or the concept behind the word in Greek thought an arche an halagos kai halagos an prostantheon okay uh, and the word was with god kai theos ain halagos and The word order reads, and God was the word, but in actuality, because of uh, how these words are uh, declined and conjugated, it actually should read, and the word was God. Because the word is in nominative, and God here is in accusative, it's the direct object. So, so, uh, in Greek, you can actually have different word ordering than you have in English, and what's important is the part of speech the word is based on its ending. It's not important, generally, unless you're trying to read it in Greek. They do follow certain word order conventions, just like we do in English, but but the difference is is that in English, word order determines the part of speech. Think about it, you know. Mm But, okay, huh. uh, um, uh, the king meets the bishop. Who's doing the acting here? The king. The king. the, king. the, king. That's the yeah. Who's the direct object? The bishop. The bishop. The bishop meets the king. It's, it's the reverse. reverse. It's the reverse. It's because of the word order only. Mm. But in Old English, you could change the endings of the words and maintain their sequence exactly in the same way. The king meets the bishop, and if you change the word endings, you can invert it so that it means the bishop meets the king, but you have the words in the same order. Greek can do the That's same like thing. Latin. It's That's exactly Latin. like Latin. Greek and Latin are very similar in that sense. Okay. This one, ein. Uh, let's read it, let's read the whole first verse completely through. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Autos ain in arche, This one. Was in the beginning with God. Panta de autogeneta, kai horus autogeneta, ude in hagenon. All things through him became, and without him became not one thing that has become. <laughs> okay. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you already hearing the philosophical character of the passage? I mean, how does Mark Matthew? How does Matthew begin? It begins with uh, the the beginning of the life of Jesus, with his uh, um, his birth. His his uh, gives the the what do you call it? The um, the pedigree, yeah. the begats. Jo- Luke's gospel begins uh, because people have set out to write one way. I'm going to tell you the story my way.
2: Exactly.
0: John begins with this philosophical stuff. Boy, does. It. In, and, and some people say, oh, this is, and it's very Greek, they'll say. Well, we'll see. In Ein auto zoe ein, kai a zoe ein tophos, tone anthropon. You can already, you've heard words you know in there. In him life was, and the life was the light, phos, photon, mm-hmm. and it was the light of all humans, Anthropone. Kai tufos en te scotia fane, kai a skotia auto And the light in the darkness shines, and the darkness it has not overtaken. Huh. This is very philosophical. This is extremely philosophical literature. This certainly is just way too Greek, isn't it? So far. It well,
2: sounds theatrical.
0: It sounds theatrical?
2: Mm-hmm. Or have I seen uh, God's Bill too me? You have. <laughs> but true. it is that exceedingly true.
0: philosophical is true. But that it is non-Hebraic is false. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1. If you can do it like I'm doing it right here, do it this way. So you got Genesis on your left and John on your right. I'm going to read John again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. While the wind from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning. The first day. Oh, do you see a connection here between Genesis chapter one and John chapter one, verses one through five? It's yeah, heavy. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a,
1: a grandiose statement, to say the least.
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> to start out the story of Jesus with an allusion when, to the... With
1: creation! Yeah. Exactly,
0: that's the point. To say this is philosophical is a true statement. To say that therefore it is not Jewish is a false statement. Genesis chapter 1 is a highly philosophical rendering of the creation account. You don't get a primitive rendering of the creation account until chapter 2. Chapter 1 is highly philosophical, the the product of a highly advanced religious culture. Whereas John chapter 1 is exactly the same thing pulling from, the, from Genesis chapter. It is, no, it is no accident. John, the author's doing this on purpose. And look at it. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being. How does God create throughout the entirety of chapter one of Genesis? By speaking. And notice, exactly, by uttering nice. the word, by speaking, God by doing God. That, God. that act of essential logic, mm-hmm. setting order in its fundamental nature. Yeah, God wouldn't have to say anything if he's God. You know. no, no, it no, it technically, happened. no, but he'd think it and it happened. Exactly. But, but he's depicted in Genesis as creating by speaking, mm-hmm. which is I'm a wondering. very advanced philosophical idea. And here we have that articulated here in John. That which God is speaking is in fact that word who is the creative agency whom we will come to know as Jesus. Wow! Talk about talk about a high Christology. I mean, we, we saw in Mark a low Christology, which is a possible adoptionism. We saw in Matthew a high Christology. We saw in, in, in Luke a high Christology, in the sense that you have the incarnation and, the Holy, and Luke the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and Mary conceiving and all this and that and the other. But this goes beyond that at warp speed. At warp speed, and look what it says next. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Let there be light.
1: (laughs) I don't think Raymond Brown attributes this to the very earliest.
0: No, no, this is reflective of the face of This is reflective of that highly advanced interpretive layer that came at at secondary or tertiary points where the author has taken materials from John, which will come to when we get to the baptism, (laughs) and has formed this introduction here, this philosophical introduction to set Jesus into his context. He's not just some rabbi from Nazareth folk He is the word that spoke creation into being. He is the light that that word proclaimed, let there be light. And notice it says, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. If you hadn't bought into the reality that John is is turning back to Genesis here, to set Jesus into this context, into this grandiose context, that ought to prove it. That is, this is some of the best, and and even though the Greek is plain, simple Koine Greek, this is some of the best writing in its beauty, Simplistic, simplistic beauty. Luke is complex in classical Greek, uh, Hebrews is complex and classical Greek. John is simple, spoken Koine Greek, but here in it its simplicity, it is communicating deep philosophical thoughts that cannot be missed. You could spend, and people have spent their entire careers working on the first five verses of John and how they reflect Jewish philosophical thought and at the same time, Greek philosophical thought. That's the secret. While Genesis chapter one was not written by Greeks, it was written by Jews coming back from the diaspora in Babylon, long before the Greek influence hit them. Nevertheless, you see strong undercurrents of Greek philosophical thought in John and they are parallel to thinking in Genesis chapter 1. Parallel. Almost like, almost like a serendipitous creation from both cultures. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. That's fascinating. That life was the light of all people. That light, that, that life is, is Jesus' very nature. Zoe is the Greek word there. Now suddenly you have, out of nowhere, something which sort of disrupts this beautiful philosophical statement in one sense, but continues it in another sense. You could skip from verse, the end of verse 5 to verse 14 and not miss what comes next. You can do it. Let's do it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt, lived among us. The, the word there, dwelt or lived, means tabernacled or intended. Wow. To be placed into a tent and the word became flesh and lived dwelt among us and we have seen his glory doxa we get doxology from that word we have seen his glory the glory as a father's only son full of grace and truth that's a difficult one because verse 14 there reads actually differently in the greek than it did in my english translation um uh, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld the glory of Him, glory as of an only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's NIV. That's, That's the important. NIV? Yeah, absolutely. NIV does a better job of it here than the NRSV yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And then notice, verse 15. In in the NRSV, so opens with a parenthesis, totally out of context. John testified to him who cried out, "This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me." All right. The author has included verses six through thirteen for a reason. It's part of the setting of Jesus. It's not disruptive, although. You can complete the entire thought here in Greek without the material in between. It's really not disruptive, and here's why. Let's pick it up at verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And that just picks up straight out of that Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about God saying, let there be light, and the light was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. That whole concept of the light shining forth and, and, and <clears throat> revealing things is, is, is contained right in there. That's John's job, to testify to that light. He was in the world. Who's the he here? Is it John? God. Or is it Jesus? Jesus. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the word. It's God, the word. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet, the world did not know him. In verse 10, it says, ain'to cosmo. The world here is not just the earth. It's the universe. Greek cosmos means everything that is. Russian uses the exact same word. Cosmos means the universe. Hmm. So this really ought to be translated, not world, but universe, or cosmos even. He was in the universe, and the universe came into being through him, yet the universe did not know him. That's tragic. Here he is, he's the creative agency that brings all things to be, and nothing came into being apart from him. And yet the it doesn't know him it doesn't know him he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him right there he's baiting on them jews not necessarily not necessarily that could be understood within the context of cosmos as own people as everybody. all people but to all who received him, who believed in his name, and that word there is the pisteo, faithed, who faithed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, exousia, authority or standing, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God.
1: I think that pretty much nails down who his people were.
0: Huh? That kind of nails down who his people were. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. The children of God are those who receive by faith, not by birth, not by works, but by faith. Well, that sounds like Paul. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. It sounds Greek. It didn't sound well. Guess what? That's part of the reason. It (laughs) It, it does sound Greek in a sense, and yet we see that active in the story of Abraham, and not just because of Paul's interpretation of it, but it actually says that Abraham faithed God, and that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. It says that in Genesis. That's not Paul's interpretation. That was Genesis' interpretation of the event. So it is a Jewish concept. But here, it's been given that Gentile push (laughs) in its philosophical setting. But it's still a Jewish push, too. That's where we're having trouble. We're always trying to separate the Hebraic and the Jewishness. At this point in time in the, the account, it's almost impossible to do that. It's almost impossible to do that. And the Word became flesh, we've already read this, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glories of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because He was before me. Okay. (laughs) John is certainly um, given a position of subservience here, without question. So he
1: read the first part. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, read it.
0: from his fullness look at verse 16 from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace the law indeed was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ Nasty. okay here we have what probably truly is the first major demarcation between Jewishness and judaism the approach to the law and christianity that's really it i right can't say that i mean this
1: that that whole first section seems to me to be uh, parody is not the right word but i mean it's an effort to retell genesis yeah absolutely it's to no. cast no. jesus in, a in non, the context of genesis. non-hebraic what, you know i mean it's a hebrew story it's a jewish story but it's clearly setting it apart this is this is the right way folks you just you know yes And the whole thing you what
0: know. you're saying is when you read genesis you don't reject it but when you read genesis you read into there that when god says let there be light that's jesus acting it's setting jesus in the context of genesis that's what it's doing it's taking this hebraic Beautiful philosophical account of creation and taking Jesus and interpreting him into it. So that we can then understand Jesus in that context.
2: So he's already there in the beginning.
0: Yes, exactly. There was no time in which Jesus was not. Right. In fact, we see that in just a second here. Um no, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It is God. No, here we got a translation problem. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. That's a bad translation in our ASV translators. Theon udios im papote. Monogones theos aon eston kulpon. To Patros, Ekanos, Ekagasata. God no man has seen, never. God no man has seen, never. The only begotten God is the one being in the bosom, the breast of the Father that one declared God, or declared him. So here it's saying, this is the highest monarchial Christology you've got. Jesus is the only begotten God, as close to God as God's own breast. Wow, that's interesting, wow. So, this is a statement, not, I mean, it's already been implied earlier on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, okay? Good, that's good logic, and that's good Greek philosophy, and that's good mathematics. Well, if you didn't catch it, then you're going to get it here. No God, no man has seen Never, No man has ever seen God (laughs) however the only begotten God the one who is in the bosom of the father he has declared God he has seen and declared him so it is essentially saying here Jesus is the only begotten God this is the beginning of Trinitarian thought it really is I thought when you saw Jesus, you saw God. You do. That's exactly what you're... That's, exactly that's what not Lisa what that said. said. Uh, yes, it is. Not this breast thing, no. It's saying that that is the only way to see
2: God is through Jesus. Oh, that's not what... Yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that
0: interpretation without your um, help there. go back here. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. Uh Well, that's the NRSV's rendering of this. It's a weak rendering because what it probably ought to read more like is no one has ever seen God. It is the God, the only begotten one, who is close to the Father's breast, who has made him known. That's probably a better rendering. And by that you understand it then that this Jesus is the only begotten God. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, and as we know, there's God the Holy Spirit. I mean, you got the Trinity here. You heard that in Matthew, you heard it throughout Paul, although never stated completely, bind all three functioning. You had it stated completely in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, and then here you have it implicitly functioning, a kind of Trinitarian formula, because you've got the problem of this tri-theotic concept of uh, the the charge from the Jews that the Christians are worshiping three gods. Yahweh as the Father, the Messiah, Jesus, they're worshiping as a God, and then the Holy Spirit who is an emanation of Yahweh as a God. And that was what the Jews were saying about the Christians towards the end of the first century and into the second century was you're worshiping three gods. You're worshiping Yahweh, you're worshiping what you believe to have been the Messiah, and you're worshiping an emanation of Yahweh, the Holy Spirit. And as if they are three separate gods. And the Christians were saying, No, we're not. We're worshiping one God and three persons. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice dance. Now everybody
1: skate the other way.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know. Where, if you're you know, gonna be mathematical about it, the, the Jews are looking at it as one plus one plus one, whereas the Christians are looking at it as one times one times one, which is equal to one. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything more than a bowl of cherries. We don't com- comprehend it. The point, though, is, is that you could have three of, three of the same, three, three one, two, one, and one, and they can interact in such a way that they are one. Well,
2: where did that kind of algebra come from?
1: <laughs> the Greeks! Okay.
0: What in the Egyptians? Well, the point is that we already have in John's Gospel this attempt to try to handle the interreaction, the interplay between God the Father and God the Son. This is definitely not that early stage. Now the John, the, 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 the John the Baptist stuff is, but that is not. That's definitely that tertiary stage of, uh, that was also responsible for the formation of some of the dialogues where you have this interpretive layer of, uh, uh, that's in place that reflects Quite frankly, very early theological development. This was absolutely written by 95, and yet you have it struggling with the with some of the basics of the Trinity right here,
1: and also with 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 the Hebraic roots. I mean, they they, they had they they hadn't broken away. Mm-hmm they had to explain all this in terms of the Old
0: Testament. They have still in their Christian communities all throughout the ancient world, you had in the Christian communities people who had been born Jews who are now Christians. They've been tossed out of the synagogues. They're now Christians without the protections of what it meant to be a Jew. But they're still dealing with their Jewish backgrounds. And the only Bible they've got is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So yeah, they absolutely have to deal with their Hebraic backgrounds.
1: And I, th- I think the Gentiles did, too. The, I mean, we're Gentiles, and we, we talk about the Old Testament. The Gentiles then the were still a, scholars of the Old Testament. They, they, the, they more That's than how much. they came in. The,
0: the Gentiles, than, the first Gentiles who became Christians were God-fearers originally. They were going to the synagogue and learning about Yahweh and learning about Judaism. They were fascinated by it. But then they heard the stories of Jesus, and it just captivated them. That's what Paul was doing, going according to the Acts and according to Paul's own letters. He was going around, preaching in the synagogues, capturing, essentially, most of these Gentile god fears, leaving the synagogue with them and some Hellenistic Jews, and forming the church. That's what happened repeatedly. And, And that situation is in which this kind of stuff gets written. And you have these Gentiles who are having to deal with this Hebrew Bible in Greek, the Septuagint Old Testament. They're having to deal with it in the context of interpreting the life of Jesus. This chapter 1, and especially those first five verses, but all of it thus far, probably resonated really good with these Christians, these these Gentile Christians and the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And I would imagine that our friends in Antioch and Damascus, who were behind the Gospel of Matthew, probably were going, (laughs) (laughs) P-U. Because they wanted this more Jewish stuff, even though they were at war with their Jewish brothers and sisters they were more Jewish in their thinking. It is absolutely correct that there's a ton of Greek thought here. But my point is is that sometimes that Greek thought is not contrary to philosophical Hebraic thought. And in fact, some of that Greek thought is complementary to that Hebraic thought. Which is interesting because Hebrew, when you read Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew, it is a poem. It is beautiful literature. It sound, if you know the language, it sounds beautiful and it reads beautiful. But it also is highly philosophical, kind of like this in Greek. And when you read the chapter 1 of Genesis in Greek, you go, wow, that's beautiful. That's really well done. And It is. It is. Any questions? Next we pick up with the testimony of John the baptizer. Now we have, this is interesting. We have seen this before. We saw it in Mark at the very beginning of his gospel. We saw it in Matthew and we saw it in Luke. That the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Essentially, comes with this affirmation of Jesus by John the Baptist, but in John's Gospel, it's far more stretched out. There's more material in here. You got Jesus going to Cana and changing water into wine to keep the party going, and, <laughs> and, 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 and interestingly enough, it seems as though. That's one of those anecdotes, by the way. It seems as though that actually fits the actual geographical setting far better than many of the stuff in the synoptics because Cana is next door to Nazareth. It's just over the hill. It would have been logical for Jesus to have gone to, to, to be with family or friends for a wedding feast in the town next door. That's not, it's not as if Cana's on the other side of the country. It's next door. They would have known him there. They would have known his mom there. He could have had family there. It's the town next door. So that's interesting. That's one of those anecdotes that actually fits the geographical characteristic of the region. And is an example of that layer that may come from actual living memory of Jesus in, his, in the early phases of his ministry. But we'll we'll read that when we get to it, which will be next time. Questions? Covered a lot of material today. Don't think I covered all of it in any uh, sufficient amount. Um, I could have talked at greater length about the authorship of it. Uh, given more details on the structural theories I tend to follow uh, Raymond E. Brown far more extensively than any of the other, although I love the works of C.K. Barrett who is an English uh, biblical scholar who's excellent. They all tend to recognize the problem with apostolic authorship here but they do tend to say that at the very beginning you have an apostolic source that over time Grew, material was added to it, interpretations were added to it, and eventually it got written down. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org.
1: That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church 2520
0: Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.